Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. This is God's Planning. My name is Father Bonaventure. And I am Father Gregory Pine. We're here at the Dominican House of Studies. And uh, Father Bonaventure is a graduate student at CUA in Philosophy, and I work for the Thomistic Institute. So today we're going to be looking at or talking about literature, but specifically one essayist, novelist, philosopher, autobiographist, biographist, G.K. Chesterton, a favorite of Father Gregory's. Dig. So we are uh, looking forward to kind of getting into it uh, with Chesterton and maybe down the road talk about other uh, famous literary figures in the Christian intellectual tradition. Uh, But we thought that before we just kind of like launch into a discussion of Uh, those particular figures and their special loves or what it is that they're best known for, that we might just kind of zoom out and examine uh, why discuss literature in the first place. So maybe just to to take it from that point, what is it about literature that is significant in human life and human culture, Uh, and specifically on a podcast wherein we talk mostly about things philosophical and theological, uh, why dither about with literature? So, Father Bonaventure. It's a great question. I think that literature... It's not a science in the sense of certainty, but it has a particular object. It looks at reality from a certain angle, which I think is tied with the imagination. I think strictly in science and even in philosophy, in in large part, we talk about concepts. But in literature, you allow the concepts to kind of mingle in with the imagination. It allows us to to see and think further, in a way, especially with imaginative fiction, uh, or science fiction or fantasy literature. I know Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and of course G.K. Chesterton, in a sense, are part of this, is that it expands the realm of what we can do with and think about concepts and what we learn about them. So literature has, as, as well, I think of it as, the object of literature is something like reality extended farther than it actually is, so that we can imagine it to be what it should be or ought to be or what it shouldn't be. It allows a free play of concepts that we don't always get with philosophy and sometimes even theology. I like that, the idea that you're extending reality, or maybe like both intensifying and extending reality. Sometimes you're telescoping it in the sense that, okay, you can't see your whole life um, in one vision. You can't hold it all together. You can't possess it simultaneously. But in a work of fiction, uh, you can begin to do that, I suppose, with someone else, but in a humanizing way whereby you're able to recognize yourself, you know, in the characters, or there are certain things or certain themes or certain interactions, certain relationships that resonate with your own experience, and as a result of which, they're able to kind of give you back your own humanity in a way that it was previously or before not yet possessed. I think about this with, like, um, these kind of sprawling epic tales about one particular person like Kristen Lavern's Daughter, or I just read a series of books called The Dance to the Music of Time by Anthony Pohl. And there's a sense in which by, by seeing the course of a whole human life, it gives you back your life as something, uh, I don't know exactly how to put it, but um, as a kind of like compact unity. You're able to have a better appreciation for who you are as like a character, the solidity of that character, maybe the lack thereof. Uh, and it causes you to reflect in a way that's not like just like moral tropes, like I should be better or I should do better, but in a way that's more profoundly humanizing. Um, yeah, I don't know how to give better expression of that. I think it has a, 
embodies those concepts in a larger framework, so the narrative or a whole picture. So instead of saying, do good or strive for this or know yourself or choose the right or don't be vicious to others, it gives you an actual picture of that in a way. I think of Dostoevsky as this, a great psychologist in a sense, even though he didn't write any psychological theories or any sort of psychological text, but his books you know, look into the depths of the human soul and they do it through characters. So it's easy for me to think about uh, guilt, not as an abstract concept, but as something that Raskolnikov goes through mm. and as he understands himself. So it gives a a larger framework and a shape to things that I think, again, I love that human humanizing aspect to it. It makes it somewhere between an abstract concept and a vague sense of something. It actually gives it a shape. So it's a, it's a human shape to the real things we care about. Now I'll ask you a question, Father Gregory, along this line, as we're doing prolegomena here. I was working at a Barnes & Noble and uh, a young lady came up and asked for, was looking for a book, and I said, well, is it fiction or nonfiction? And she said, which one's the true one? <laughs> so I, I had a particular answer to that and have a particular thought about that. I think it's, a, it's an important question. What, do you, what, what would you have said to this young lady? Or what would you philosophically have said to this young lady? You might not have said that at the given time. Um, but yeah. how would you respond to, such a, to that sort of question, and what do you think's behind it? Sure, whether or not she had the patience for a disquisition. I think that... Um, she didn't. Okay. Well, there's a sense in which, you know, nonfiction is the telling of facts, but there's a sense in which uh, fiction is also the telling of facts. And I think that the object of every author of fiction ought to be to tell the truth. Um, you ought to be able to somehow perceive something about humanity, to transpose it into his medium, and then to subsequently relate it in the form proper to whatever novel or short story or poetry or whatever. Um, but, but effectively, it's, it's a truth-telling act. And I think that we recognize this when it's not present. So when we are dealing with a work of fiction that is, like, just themes on stilts, or if we're dealing with a work of fiction that's ideological, or that's just kind of advocacy, or it's something that's, uh, yeah, it's not primarily concerned with telling the truth about reality. It seems to us kind of, like, artificial, or propped up, or disingenuous. Um, but what we like really want in fiction is somebody who has kind of like struggled with and suffered with their human experience and that has attempted who has attempted to relate to you something of that experience because our experiences are very much particular they're individual uh, and it's 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 very difficult to make them universal or communicate them in a way that's intelligible without risking uh, misinterpretation. I think part of the genius of the novelist, part of the genius of the author of fiction, is to take that particular experience and then to be able to communicate it in a way that, that breaks it open um, to, yeah, like a kind of uh, sympathy or fellow feeling or just a more universal experience, to kind of put it baldly, I suppose. Um, so yeah, the, the, the author of fiction has to be, has to be, has to be engaged in the telling of the truth, which is why when we suspect a falsity, it can sometimes ruin the whole thing for us. Like I was just talking to somebody who read a novel and they said they really liked it up until the end, but because it, it ended on a false note, it kind of spoiled the whole experience. Mm. And I think like that's that was kind of my experience with reading The Grapes of Wrath, because you're you're like kind of accompanying the Jode family through this long period of struggle. And at the end you realize like this is a secular humanist manifesto, right? And and the question of God is completely closed off in such a way that I think it actually falsifies the experience and I feel estranged from these characters rather than like connected to them. 
So I think, yeah, I think they bo- both are engaged in acts of truth-telling, but, uh, but certainly they are different ones. <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe this is where I, I try to distinguish between fiction and literature, you know, as I think literature, in a sense, if you look at a Barnes & Noble place, you have, you don't have fiction, you usually have literature as a category, and there's something more exalted about that. Uh, and I think part of it's to do with the fact that literature are the fiction books that we have accounted as true, mm. that we that we get a sense that whether it's uh, C.S. Lewis or Walker Percy or Flannery O'Connor or Dostoevsky or David Foster Wallace or or Henry James or James Joyce, any of the any of the greats or Cervantes, we have a sense that they have made it to the pantheon of literature. They're not just fiction in the sense of an imaginary tale or something that's not factual uh, because they're deeper than that and people have appreciated their their truth to them so we attest to that by i think calling them literature as opposed to just just fiction but i I do think you're right that it's they all have to aim at truth the question about whether fiction you know which is true literature or not or non-fiction is kind of like asking which one's which which is true a portrait or a picture of someone, and I think they're they're two different things. And in a real sense, anyone who's seen a real good portrait, you go down the portrait gallery, or if you just have one of a family member or something, the portrait actually describes more than the photograph. A photograph gets some very important details, but a portrait, a painting of someone, is able to bring in a fuller picture. I believe in that sense that there's a, a depth to it. An emotion involved there. It's intentionally told by another person to describe someone, whereas a photograph often isn't just well, it's just a selfie or a snapshot or something. It's just a random slice in time. Where a, a painting of someone, a portrait of someone, is a distillation of of who that person is supposed to be. So if you look at John Singer Sargent or the great American impressionists that do portraits of of people, they they're grand things because they're they're making truth claims about this person in a way that. A photograph just kind of makes a factual claim, which is, at the end of the day, uninteresting. In the same way, uh, Cervantes' Don Quixote will be on the the list in the bookshelves or the Kindles or what have you a lot longer than, I don't know, any particular psychological or sociological textbook will be. Those will be replaced with new pictures and new editions almost immediately. But these other books, they stay. They absolutely stay, because I think they have that, that depth of truth to them. So let's just dig in on one of these guys, I suppose. G.K. Chesterton, a good place to start because this is a podcast about culture and philosophy and theology and literature and the higher things, we could say. Uh, and this G.K. Chesterton was certainly a man who crossed all those those areas. And I'll just give, since you know a lot more about him than I do, Father Gregor, if you could give a quick uh, biography and then whoa, just a, a sort of sketched portrait of him in a way. Sure. So G.K. Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936 and he let's see his only like his only like formal education post-secondary education was uh, a couple years at an art school um and during you know his uh late adolescence and early adult life he converted from a kind of like theosophical religion to anglicanism and then later in the 1920s maybe just like 15 years before he died he converted to catholicism i think that's about right um, and he really, I mean, he cut his teeth as a journalist. So he started writing right about the turn of the century. And he wrote a weekly column for the London Illustrated Times for, I mean, decades. 
but early on, he also wrote some poetry. His first collection of poetry is pretty hilarious, called Greybeards at Play. Um, he tried his hand at an epic poem, The Ballad of the White Horse. Uh, he was kind of, he, be, he became famous or well-regarded as a popular apologist, so defending Christian um, doctrines uh, that were controverted. Uh, he was also um, like well-known just kind of as, a, as an essayist in general. Uh, so he wrote travelogues, uh, he wrote uh, literary works, he wrote quite a number of um, biographies or kind of literary biographies of Dickens um, and let's see, Browning and Chaucer and others, mostly English or writing in the English language. Um, and he, he tried his hands, uh, he tried his hand uh, at, uh, at writing novels. The one for which he's most famous is A Man Who Is Thursday, but there are quite a few others, and um, I guess Ignatius Press has started to pick up a couple of them in recent years. Um, so like Man Alive is one that people have heard of, and then uh, The Tales of the Longbow, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, things along those lines. Uh, so he's, be he's I suppose he's best known as an apologist, essayist, and journalist, but he also dabbled in, uh, in other things literary. And people might know him from the, the mystery novels, of course, Father Brown's stories. So if you've seen, I think BBC did a, uh, an edition of this and might be doing another or more recent edition as well. My mother was watching it when I last visited, so yeah. So, yeah, so shout out there. Um, so <laughs> Father, Father Brown is kind of like if you like Inspector Lewis or, or uh, Invictus or, oh, no, no, in, uh, what's Inspector, what's... Um, I don't Morris, know. Inspector Morris's first name, the old. So Inspector Morris has is is the leader for Inspector Lewis is his disciple, and then there's uh, a new one. So if you like those, those British mystery sort of things, Father Brown stories are are another example of them, and it's something we read in Novitiate. We had as table reading. They're really awful table reading, <laughs> because uh, you you never they never quite last long enough to finish um, in one sitting. So you're always kind of well after the cliffhanger. Now, the good part about that, in a way, is, and this maybe this is where the criticism comes in, is that Chesterton, for me at least, um, you kind of always know what's going to happen. You know, it's a bit like watching uh, uh, Scooby-Doo and the, uh, what's that, the mystery cartoon, cartoon mystery thing where uh, the mystery van and Scooby-Doo, and so it was always... It was always like the person you least expected turned out had to have a face ripped off them because he was the one who was trying to get the... the um, the the kids and sort of thing, <laughs> so it was I, at least for me um, Chesterton I always once you got the knack of it like once you figured out what he was up to, you realized that you just had to pick out the most the least likely character and least likely scenario to be true, and you knew in about fifteen pages that that was going to occur, so um, that's that's one reading of him. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give a short defense of All the right, Father Brown story. That's great. Go for it. So when people, when, oftentimes when people pick up Chesterton, they find it a little bit intimidating. Um, he's famous for being paradoxical, so aligning truths that seem at first sight to be contradictory, uh, but at the end of the day are reconcilable in a more profound way than at first seemed possible. Uh, and he's also, you know, he's, he's witty and he's, you know, replete with wisecracks, but sometimes you can feel like he spent a couple of pages just setting up a joke, and that can be exhausting for some people. Uh, and other people just find him dense. Like, if you've ever tried reading The Everlasting Man, you're like, what exactly is going on here? Or a lot of people have struggled trying to read orthodoxy. But I think that um, the Father Brown stories are a good place to start to appreciate Chesterton because they're charming, and, and mm -hmm. because it's it's a literary genre. You know, like, 
detective fiction. He he was friends with uh, a number of his contemporaries who wrote detective fiction, including Agatha Christie, actually. They once wrote a novel together called The Floating Admiral. There were like ten of these detective fiction authors who each, they, they one wrote a chapter and then handed it on to the next person uh, who added subsequently. So Chesterton wrote the introduction and I think Agatha Christie wrote one of the chapters. Uh, not an especially good book, but a hilarious venture. They have just the stupidest <laughs> names. That's one of my other gripes about Chesterton is he just picks stupid names. But, you know, carry on. That's okay. Uh, but I think the thing that's beautiful about the Father Brown stories is that, uh, so Father Brown is especially good at solving mysteries because he, like the Lord, CF John 4, knows what's in the heart of man. Uh, so his real knack is a knack for humanity. Um, and I think, you know, you see different, uh, you know, whether it's Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple mm-hmm. or um, Lord Peter Whimsey, you know, like di- different detectives have different ways of kind of... Um, yeah, like working it out or teasing out the implications. You know, Sherlock Holmes with the power yeah. of deduction. Uh, but like the real, the real trick, as it were, for Father Brown is just the fact that he knows man. So there's one particularly charming story where it's called the Secret of Father Brown, where he's asked how it is that he solves all of these mysteries, uh, and he responds. You know, after some hemming and hawing and blah blah blah, he responds by saying, uh, "Because I myself have committed all of them." Mm-hmm. Um, and in saying that, he's not just being, you know, cheeky. He's admitting his solidarity with sinful man. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he's, he realizes that, but for the grace of God go I, and that he's capable of all of them, and so he can sympathize in a certain sense with the criminal. Um, so that's an apology for well, Father that's, Brown. And, that, and that's good. And in fact, that, that British show, Inspector Lewis, which is set in Oxford, um, the, Inspector Lewis's disciple in that is a seminarian. Uh, and so he brings that on, because it, does, it is an interesting perspective that priests or seminarians or people religious know the depths of, of humanity and that allows them to picture things and see things maybe differently than say I mean Sherlock Holmes, maybe this is like an atheistic version of this, I don't know if he's an atheist if, if Conan Doyle has a bit, but Sherlock Holmes is, his solving things is by the sheer power of his rational skill, you're supposed to glorify in man in this way, whereas Father Brown's, uh, Chesterton's version of this is no, it's it's in the depths the depths and the sinfulness of man, and but the knowledge of that through the mercy of God and through a, a divine perspective, not a superhuman perspective, is what actually solves the best mysteries, I haven't thought about that, but that's there's something salutary in that, so I guess they're worthwhile reading. I would say some of them are. Just a couple, four or five of them, and you're, you're probably good. Um, start start with the queer feet because if you're into Catholic fiction, mm-hmm. that's important for Brideshead Revisited. One of the key lines in mm-hmm. Brideshead Revisited comes from the end of that one, and that's a really beautiful one. Um, there may be like 50, 51, 52 of them, and you can get them all in one volume. I'm sure you can get it secondhand for like 10 bucks. The Father Brown Omnibus. Uh, he published them separately as five separate collections. I said separate twice in the same sentence. Apologies, um, but uh, but yeah, those are those are delightful. And I mean, the other thing about Chesterton that I, that I do like is he, you get a sense of joy streaming off of him. And I suppose there was a, a book by Father Paul Murray about the the new Dominican the new wine of Dominican spirituality or something. Mm-hmm. And he talked about what was that? And it was joy because when you read about Saint Dominic's life, you get a sense of a man who is always joyful. He's really always joyful and always always laughing and. You get the beautiful picture of, of, of a, a real life of happiness in a full sense, not just in sense pleasures, but eudaimonistically or flourishing, but in a joyful flourishing sense, not just doing well, but feeling good about it too. And that's what it just leaps off the page from my mind with Chesterton. No matter what you're reading with him, he's, he's really reveling and enjoying deep questions, whether it be through in heresies or orthodoxy with doctrines of the church, 
um, or the detective novels, or anything else he's read, and even you and Father Gregory could speak about this journalistically, you get a sense that he's taking great joy and amusement in the world, but not in the way that we do sometimes today where it's sort of, well, tragic joy. Um, you laugh, you cry. But in the sense that you laugh because all things are good and because there's a sort of irony to the, fa- to the faith and to the world that if we, you know, d- don't take ourselves too seriously because stuff's pretty mysterious. And I like that quality of, of Chesterton. He takes the world both lightly and seriously. And there's a combination of the way he does that that very few people, some people just take it lightly and other people take it seriously, but Chester is able to do both at the same time, which is fascinating to me. I, um, so one of the criticisms leveled against Chesterton as uh, a writer of fiction is that he's not especially good at formulating characters. So it's sometimes said that his characters don't really have faces. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some authors who are just especially good at you know, making characters. In a certain sense, they lead with the characters and they come to discover that the characters are telling mm-hmm. a story or that they're, like, already involved in a plot yeah. and they're just Good beholden. Good have that ability, yeah. yeah. they're just kind of, like, beholden to the trajectory that's already inborn in the, you know, the figures that have emerged from their imagination. Whereas with Chesterton, it's very clear that he leads with themes mm-hmm. uh, and then he puts his themes in human form. Mm-hmm. And as a result of which, they, they don't tend to be the most memorable characters or they don't tend to be the most sympathetic of characters. They're more kind of like illustrative tropes, uh, which is fine. I mean, it's just, it, I, I guess it kind of uh, argues against his merit as a writer of fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but truth be told, like what people are in it for uh, isn't, isn't the fiction itself. It's more so the themes that he's adduced. Well, I think similar to the great debate between J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis uh, on the difference between Narnia, for instance, and, and, the, Lord, and the Lord of the Rings... Uh, trilogy, uh, the criticism, of course, is that Narnia is just so simplistic and all of this, whereas the Lord of the Rings trilogy is this beautiful, beautiful work with these incredible characters and such. And Lewis's thought was always, well, my goal wasn't to write great, great literature; it was to teach parts of the faith. So it had a catechetical purpose to it. So the fact that you don't remember any particular characters that impressively, Peter or whoever else, um, isn't as important as remembering the themes of, you know. Uh, of the different books about further and further up, the different phrases that show up in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader or in Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, you know, always it's a, always winter and never Christmas. These kind of things that, that stick in your mind, phrases and, and teachings, you could even say. Uh, the Horse and His Boy has beautiful uh, teaching about the Doctrine of Providence is in there, about the, the that Aslan's always alongside the, the, the boy uh, in that story, even though he doesn't see him there. So it's, Beautiful teacher. So in a sense, it's like hijacking literature for catechetical purposes in a way, but that's a fine way to do things, especially if you've, it's important <laughs> to teach those things. And you know, it took Tolkien forever to write his things, and there's a lot of people that read them and go, "I don't see any Christian stuff in there at all." So it's like, is that a failure? Some would say so. But I'm a. We could talk. Maybe we could talk about Lewis at a later time. I'm a big fan of Lewis, and I love his space trilogy and such. Um, but we're talking about G.K. Chesterton, not C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. <laughs> so let's get back to him. Why not? Um, so. The other novel, the other novels there. So, Man Who Was Thursday. I suppose we should talk briefly about that, since that's what people would most most likely. Or, if you want to read one of his novels, perhaps that's well known that you could talk to someone else with. If you read some of his novels, uh, people might say, I don't, I don't know who that is. But this one, Man Who Was Thursday, is the the, the key one, or the most most well known one. I suppose it's like Graham, Graham Greene and The Power and the Glory, uh, except it's not as good, I suppose. But Ooh, maybe not. Um, Father Gregory, what, what, 
what's the Man Who's Thursday, what's it about, and uh, what's what's to take from it, in a sense, without doing spoiler alerts. Okay, without spoiler alerts. Although, I mean, in, no, it's good not... fiction, you know, I yeah. mean, you're gonna... None of, neither of us are going to be able to <laughs> produce Chesterton's sure. glory and brilliance, such as it is or isn't, um, in this description, so go ahead. Alright, so, quick admission... I've read it a couple of times, and I still don't quite understand what it means. Mm -hmm. But this is what I've pieced together. So the idea is that you're following this this main character, Gabriel Syme, uh, S-Y-M-E. I hope that's you pronounce it, how you pronounce it. I'm not sure if you do. Um, and he is a police officer, and he manages to infiltrate the High Anarchical Council of Europe, which is constituted uh, by seven members. And so as an undercover policeman, he is quite naturally nervous in his new setting, though he is expectant that he'll be able to uncover their anarchical plots and to uh, undo them, or, you know, spare Europe the fate of anarchy. Uh, along the way, though, he comes to discover that some of the other members of this anarchical council are also undercover policemen. Mm -hmm. uh, the first discovery is... Now you really can see where this is going, right? This is a classic <laughs> Chester, you know exactly where this is going to end, but carry yeah. on. Um, the, the first discovery for him, it's a really beautiful description of friendship. Uh, he says... Like, like, there's this huge, palpable sense of relief in Syme. And Chesterton says that throughout the whole ordeal, his root fear had been isolation. And then he goes on to say, I concede to the mathematicians that four is twice two, but two is not twice one. Two is 2,000 times one. And that's one of those kind of purposefully paradoxical things. But the point of which is that the difference between being alone and having a friend isn't the difference between having, like, an okay life and having a twice as okay life. It's a difference between finding life impossible and insupportable and finding life possible and good. Mm -hmm. And so like the whole inbuilt to the whole story is the sense that like you almost have to have despaired of everything in order to inherit everything. Uh, and it's, I think it's just Chesterton's illustration of you have to lose your life to save it. Mm -hmm. So Gabriel Syme is this character who loses his life effectively. Like he descends into the depths of this really terrible and disordered and awful thing. Uh, and comes to discover that born of that disorder and terror is a new communion. that um, so starts with friendship, but it ends up, and at this point I will kind of tail off, uh, no spoilers. Oh, okay. um, I was going to say. <laughs> it, it's something that gives him back his life. Uh -huh. um, so I think there's like sacramental Im imagery. There's canonic um, imagery there, yeah. Certainly. And, and it like ties in, it ties in with one of Chesterton's kind of like favorite insights or favorite themes which you hear described in uh, Orthodoxy. Um, so the chapter is called The Flag of the World, where Chesterton says, mm. basically, it's not sufficient to be an optimist or to be a pessimist. He thinks that both are inadequate responses to reality. Because mm -hmm. he thinks that an optimist is, he thinks that everything is better than it in fact is, and a pessimist um, isn't really willing to admit that anything is good except for himself. What he says, like the kind of middle way, or the uh, synthesis, I suppose, is the patriot. And he speaks about the place of the Christian as being a cosmic patriot, uh, because it's one who recognizes the fact that like reality is given, right? And we love it not because it's good, mm -hmm. or not because it could be better, but simply because it's ours, right? And so he talks about there's this like old kind of rundown seaside resort in England at the time, and he said if people just loved it because of what it is, it would be transfigured. Mm -hmm. But they love it as a social project, or they love what it could be. You know, they love it the way that Lady Marchman loves her children. Mm -hmm. You know, like you, the. Like, if we loved it for its potential, that's not a transformative love. Mm. And so, like, it all harkens back to basically, like, God's love, which is creative and generative, mm. you know? Um, so he thinks that, like, the Christian response to reality is basically, uh, you know, kind of given in the same spirit. Namely that, yeah, you have to lose your life to save it, but in the recognition that in losing it, all is given back to you in spades. 
Yeah, I think that. So he has these. Yeah, Cosmic Patriot. It's such a stupid name, <laughs> but it, but it's it's so good. I mean, Chesterton has this. There's this great gospel simplicity to him, right? It was the little children you know, suffer them not? The little children will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And and Chesterton strikes me as a man when you read him, when you think about him, as a man who always remains as a child. He remains in this wonder, uh, state of wonder at everything. He's just he's excited about it, and you get a sense of someone who you could take anywhere and he would find delight in it it's like when children you know if, if you want to get children to do something you just have to act excited about it and they'll get excited about the strangest things you know put it away the time to put away the dishes like yay and you can make a game out of it and you get a sense that Chester knows this man uh, that who could make a game out of anything because he took great delight in the being of the world because he saw it as a as already as a gift it was already a present and so there are always things to be found and enjoyed about so i i there's some yeah, beautiful simplicity to him and childlikeness that uh, reminds me. It's like self-reflection when you, you shoot at Chesterton, you find out that uh, you're really shooting at yourself. That there's a it needs to be a more jo- a joyfulness and accept- acceptance and a delight, a, a real delight in creation the way that Chesterton has it. There's a beautiful line, uh, and maybe we can kind of wind down with this, but I don't exactly know how it goes, but Chesterton always quoted things inaccurately, so I feel like in the Chestertonian spirit I should do the same. Mm. He says something like, um, a child of nine is delighted to hear that Tommy opened the door and found a dragon. He says, a child of four is delighted to hear that Tommy opened a door. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I love it. But that's just the idea. Like, Chesterton was a big child. Not in the sense of childish, but childlike. Childlike, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that he had an expansive heart that was really, really, like, well attuned to how very good is the gift of of reality. You know, Mm. the gift of God, the gift of creation. Well, and I think that we should, before we end, we should talk just briefly about, since this is a Dominican thing to do, he, of course, wrote one of the most famous biographies of Thomas Aquinas, and recommended by none less than Etienne Gilson, Jacques Maritain, and uh, Antonin, Antonin Pages, as well as Joseph Pieper. And I think it was described, it's called The Dumb Ox, and it was described as the best book ever written about, on, Tom, on Thomas, especially since he never read him. <laughs> Because you don't get a sense that actually Chesterton knew. It was almost like that Thomas was con natural to him because he descri- describes Thomas as Thomas a creator. So Thomas of the creator. That there was that Thomas loved the gift of being and loved the creation as itself. And that's what Chesterton was. So when it's funny, all these great Thomists that recommended this book and said this is the book you need to read. It, this isn't from, and they wrote their own books on Thomas, or some of them did. This this is a man Chesterton wasn't a Thomas scholar and hadn't read all the you know the the, the whole collected works or the Summa I don't know if he even read the Summa Theologiae I mean Flannery O'Connor might have beat him out on this sort of this this ground but somehow he got him in a way that they thought was essential to a broad overbrush and a a sketch of who he is a portrait as we if we hearken back to what does literature do in a sense his Thomas biography the Dumb Ox is is literature about Thomas, which is not f- just random facts, but about the truth of what Thomas and who this, who this man was and what his teaching was. And that's a, really a, a joyful thing about, about Chesterton is that he took joy in even the high theology of St. Thomas and had something to teach us, a child like as he was. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it is incredible that he had so small an exposure to St. Thomas and yet kind of intuited what it is that St. Thomas stood for or a spirituality of St. Thomas. 
Um, but I think, yeah, the point that you that you highlight uh, just really gets at the heart of it, namely that, like, they were attuned to the same things. Namely, um, yeah, they fed from the same table, they worshipped the same God, uh, and they also had a similar vision of reality, which gave them a kind of sympathy, whereby Chesterton was able to <laughs> relate things about Thomas that surprised even those who had studied him for the better part of their lives. Uh, so I think, yeah, with that, maybe we'll uh, we'll wrap things up. Thanks so much for having joined us here again on Godsplaining. We look forward to uh, chatting with you again next week. Um, all the best in your work and in your prayer, and until the next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Godsplaining, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.